1: This is The Shum Michael Singleton Show. I am absolutely thrilled with the guest we have on the show today, and I appreciate her for dedicating the time uh, to join us to talk about why she's running for president and some of her policy positions. I'm talking about none other than Marianne Williamson, the best-selling author, political activist, and spiritual thought leader for over three decades, 30 years. I'm 32, so as long as I've been alive, She has been a leader in spiritual and religiously progressive circles. She is the author of 15 books, impressive, four of which have been number one New York Times bestsellers. And here's an amazing quote that I love from Marianne. Our deepest fear is not that we we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. And that's from one of her books, A Return to Love. What an amazing quote. Marianne, welcome to the Shermichael Singleton Show.
2: Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Talking about age difference, my career is 40 years old. (laughs) (laughs) So, longer
1: than I've been alive. (laughs) Yeah. Incredible. I have to tell you, you are to me a very unique candidate. I've worked on three presidential campaigns on the Republican side. And I remember when you first ran the first time around, and and I watched you with great intrigue, Uh, your ability to communicate as a messenger, I thought was just phenomenal. Uh, Some of the policy positions that you adopted, I even found myself as a conservative saying, huh, I actually like some of this stuff. And when I would talk to other individuals, Democrats, Republicans alike, They were all very much so intrigued by you, and and as I was saying before we went live, I posted that you were coming on the show, and I was surprised by some of the people, and I know their politics, who DM'd me and said, I like her, I'm impressed by her, I want to hear what she has to say. So I think your support is more diverse and wider than people may actually realize.
2: Well, thank you. That's kind of you to say.
1: So let's just jump into this. Marianne, why run again? You ran the first time. Running for president isn't easy. You're a best-selling author. Uh, you're soon-to-be grandmother, if not already a grandmother. I mean, there's a lot of things you could be doing with your life. Why throw your hat in the ring again?
2: I think this country is on a dangerous trajectory. I think that There is a crowd closer to the gates of the Bastille than the political elite of either party seem to have any idea. When you have 70% of Americans, according to CNBC, who say they live with chronic economic stress, uh, when you see the level of sheer despair, the ubiquitous despair that's out there, people barely hanging on you know, just struggling to survive on a daily basis in the richest country in the world. This creates an unsustainable situation. This is so far beyond left versus right or conservative versus liberal, you know, uh, Eisenhower, said that the American mind at its best is both liberal and conservative. We've forgotten that. We've forgotten it's not supposed to be either or here, guys. Nobody has a monopoly on truth. Nobody has a monopoly on ownership of this country. It's supposed to be this sort of yin and yang where, you know, high-minded conservative principles, high-minded liberal principles. And we're so busy arguing that, that the real dichotomy is being ignored. And that real dichotomy is between the 20% of us who live basically, you know, in a great... uh, Actually, you know, if you're in that 20 percent economically in the United States, life's good here. But you've Mm -hmm. got 70, 80 percent for people of people for whom um, it's like a sea of economic despair and we're not dealing with it. We talk about it, but we're not dealing with it. And um, if we don't address it enough talking about it, if we don't address it in ways that really make a difference then I fear for my country.
1: No, I agree with those remarks, and I would venture to say that many people, to 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 the point that you've made, and in, in regards to it, been a little bit of liberalism, a little bit of conservatism, really sort of finding that right mark. I would also agree beyond the extremes. Let me ask you this question. I just want to get this out of the way because I've seen some reports on this, and people are saying, well, based on the way. Democrats in in this case, but even Republicans, based on the way both major parties set up their primary process, particularly if you're the sitting president, it's impossible for anyone of that particular party to run against the sitting president. So why even do this? Would you be taking votes away going for the other guy? What do you say to people who ask that question?
2: Well, first of all, I'm not taking votes away, because I'm running within the Democratic primary. So you can't be a spoiler if you're running within the Democratic primary. In terms of why do it, you know, I heard, I heard Chunk Ugar say something that just hit me like a brick to the forehead. He said somebody is going to break through. Now, the way the system exists right now, there's a lock on the door. There's no doubt about it. Everybody's seen it. Everybody knows it. It's it's like clear for everyone to see. But it's important to remember that the issues that I'm running on, which are considered moderate positions in every other advanced democracy, the majority of people in this country agree with them. Mm-hmm. So at a certain point, what's happening here is that the political system at this point does more to thwart than to facilitate the expression of the will of the people but the will of the people is like something that's almost like leaning against a brick wall you just keep leaning against the brick wall at a certain point that wall is going to start to crumble in a certain way it's already crumbling now the the problem is, uh which way is it going to crumble? Is it going to crumble in the direction of greater democracy and justice? Or is it going to crumble in the direction of authoritarianism and what could be a seriously dystopian society?
1: Why do you think we're sort of fractured to to that point that you just made about authoritarianism or or a more freer society? Why are we sort of at this uh, unique dichotomy, if you will, trying to figure out what version of ourselves do we ultimately want to be?
2: I think it's it's clear to anybody who really observes this here. This fracture was artificially created. You know, um, Matt Taibbi wrote a really good book called um, Hate Inc. Mm-hmm. And it was about how everyone from, you know, all, all the major really uh media companies ultimately got involved. Once you started having TV news turned into a profit-making venture, it -hmm. became less about educating people, less about, once again, facilitating the real exercise of democracy by allowing people to express themselves, and more about creating narratives that could make money, whether it was for Fox or it was for CNN or it was for MSNBC. And they should all be ashamed of themselves, if you ask me. So, yeah, I,
1: mean, look, I, I agree. I, I'm on television all the time. And I, and I think you're right in regards to the disservice. So if you were to be elected, how would you yeah. try to change that?
2: Well, you know, I don't think that you can change something like that only on the outside. I think it begins with a space of respect that you yourself try to demonstrate and I think that we need to remember the foundational first principles of this country the whole first principle e pluribus unum out of many one you know we we have to go back to our first principles here john adams said we should we should revisit them every July 4th because our first principles are our, our North Star. They are those things on which we are to agree to agree. So that's the whole idea of out of many one. Many different people, races, ethnicities, cultures, sex, sexuality, whatever. But united by these field common principles to which you own fealty. These are the things to which... I feel this country needs to return. We've never fully manifest them. We've never fully actualized them. But at our best, our ancestors have expanded that democratic franchise. All men are created equal, given inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Governments are instituted to secure those rights, and when government is not doing its job, it's the right of the people to alter it or abolish it. I want to see U.S. foreign policy and domestic policy realigned with the better angels of our nature, realigned with those principles that all men are created equal. I don't care if you're a transgender American. I don't care if you're a a female American. I don't care if you're a Jewish American, a Hindu American, a Christian American. If you're an American This country belongs to you. We have forgotten these things, these principles need to be etched again on our hearts. They're etched on parchment, they're etched on marble walls, but we've lost our emotional connection to the principles on which we purport to stand. And when we apply those principles, what is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? You could look at economic policies. You could look at food policies. You could look at agricultural policies. You could look at at gun policies. You could look at oil policies. You could look at defense policies and ask yourself, really, because does that secure life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all of our of our citizens, then once you agree that that is the point, then you have your high-minded conservative, your high-minded liberal views of how do we get there? But what's Mm -hmm. happened to us? We've forgotten even what the goal is supposed to be. And that's when a country is in trouble.
1: And and so in thinking about that, some folks who are supporters of Joe Biden or even Joe Biden himself, if you were on the debate stage (laughs) with him, would say, I agree with everything that Marianne said, presumably. What would you say then in that regard distinguishes you from the current president and some of the positions he's taken since he's been in office?
2: I'd say, really, President Biden, then why haven't you raised the minimum wage? I would say, It's you have a third of American workers living on less than $15 an hour, only half of American workers can even afford a place to live. We have um, even $15 an hour is way below a living wage in major cities in this country. So how do you, when you see how many people in this country have to work two or three jobs just in order to survive. So the president said that we were going to raise the minimum wage, which he did for federal workers. And Mm -hmm. then when it came to taking it further, once the parliamentarian said it doesn't belong in the bill, he stopped. Now, to be honest, I cannot even imagine the Republicans stopping because uh, on something they wanted because the parliamentarian said so. The parliamentarian, well, I parliamentarians tell
1: you that they and, would they, they not. They just couldn't do that. As a, as they as would Republican like laugh. They'd fire yeah. that
2: person. <laughs> right. So that's what I would say. Really? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Where's the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for someone in the richest country in the world who has to work two or three jobs uh, to make a living? You know, both parties, uh, and I, I said this before, you know, shame on, shame on, you know, pox on both houses. During the 1970s, the average American worker had decent benefits, could afford a car, could afford a house. Could afford a home, could afford a yearly vacation, could afford for one parent to stay home if they wanted to, and Mm -hmm. they could afford to send their kids to college. That was in the 1970s. It didn't just happen out of nowhere that that is no longer the case.
1: No, I I think you're right. Guys, this is Shermichael Singleton, my guest today, Marianne Williamson, Democratic candidate for the presidency. Check out her website, Marianne2024.com.
2: Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad free?
1: So, welcome back to the show, guys. My guest today is Marianne Williamson. She's running for president as a Democrat. Uh, Go to her website, marianne2024.com, and check out uh, all of the issues that she stands for and believes in. And I got to tell you, if you go to the menus page on the website and click on issues, there are a ton of them from animal protection to children, climate action, crime prevention, all the way down to reparations. That's one that most mainstream candidates do not want to talk about Uh, women's rights, student plan and so on and so forth. forth. And so I got to tell you guys, as someone who's done this before, most of the times for a whole host of reasons, candidates don't go over all of those issues. You want to sort of shield the candidate, uh, if you will, uh, from inconsistencies or you want to shield the candidate from taking too many positions on too many things in part because the concern traditionally is, well, I don't want to weaken my candidate. I don't want to put them in a space where they can't properly respond to something. And here's Marianne saying, no, these are the things that I believe in and I'm okay with putting it out there, Marianne. I mean, why are you taking this sort of unique uh, position in, in how you're putting your policies forward?
2: Well, there are two ways to look at social change. A horizontal axis, or a vertical axis. A mm-hmm. horizontal axis is what you just said. You're after more people. So you never want to say too much about what you really believe. You want to dumb down your message. You want to make it as milk toast as possible in order to get the most people to agree with you. Mm-hmm. The vertical axis is where you're relying on the power of conviction. Because conviction is a force multiplier. So you're not thinking about what do people want to hear. Uh, that's just people pleasing politics. That's where the leader is a follower rather than a leader. You say what you believe, and then if uh, if there are those who are either open to it or, uh, as uh, James Joyce would say, almosting it, then it it resonates with people and it attracts an audience. And also remember, as you and I were talking about off um, off mic, the positions that I take are the positions that are agreed upon. Uh, by, you know, the majority of people in this country say they want universal health care and so forth. There's no value in this race to me, except to say what I honestly believe. And and I believe that the American people deserve to have an array of options placed before them. The way I look at a, a political campaign such as this, to me, it's a long job interview. Everybody's listening to you today is is interviewing the candidate. that that's what a job the uh, candidate for that job. Mm-hmm. And they people have a right to hear who are you and what would you do with the job if we give it to you? This is a sacred responsibility of democracy both for for the citizen to listen to what the candidates have to say and for the candidate to be honest about what they would do if they had the job.
1: No, I agree 100 percent. I want to transition and talk a little bit about economics. So we're on Urban View. um, Most of the audience is African-American or at least a part of the African diaspora. Economics, in my opinion, is an issue that I don't think Republicans or Democrats have really given the right amount of attention to as it pertains to the black community. Uh, You look at statistics and we are still significantly behind Uh, our white counterparts, Uh, you look at statistics and you see that African-Americans have a harder time getting access to capital. Uh, During the COVID pandemic, over 50% of black owned small businesses were decimated. And we have yet to actually see a plan from Republicans or even Democrats to try to foster an environment to help those businesses come back. What exactly would be your plan? What is your plan? And, And for black voters who may sort of be on the fence, who are interested in someone who's willing to dedicate the proper amount of time and attention to elevating economics for our community, what do you say to them?
2: Well, first of all, if you closed the wage gap between blacks and whites in America, we would have a $1.5 trillion larger economy. So Mm -hmm. it would benefit white people as well as black people for this issue to be to be handled. So there are two things. One is the basic systemic economic injustice that has nothing to do with race, which just has to do with the massive transfer of wealth into the hands of 1% of our people. That underlies the economic problems suffered by the vast majority of Americans, no matter what their color. And that is my main answer to that is a complete economic U-turn encapsulated in something I call an Economic Bill of Rights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When it comes to racial, however, you know, I come at this, uh, Michael, from a uh, a career as well as a personal devotion to spiritual principle. And whether it's Catholics that confession or Jews on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, or a 12-step Alcoholics Anonymous meeting where people are admitting the exact nature of their wrongs. It is a principle, a psychological and spiritual principle. You cannot have the future you want if you don't clean up the past. Mm. Now, I'm Jewish. Germany has paid $89 billion in reparations to Jewish organizations after World War II. By the middle of the 20th century, it was a commonly accepted, um, a principle of civilized behavior, certainly in the Western world, mm-hmm. financial remuneration to people who have been wronged by another people. We even paid twenty five thousand dollars each to those who had been incarcerated, um, interned uh, Japanese uh, citizens, yeah. or, you know, Japanese Americans who were interned during uh, World War Two. So when I look at the issue of reparations, I don't look at it first and foremost as what are you going to do about the economics of the black community? I'm coming at it from I want to help repair America and America won't ever be able to heal until we deal with this debt that is still owed. Now, I'm also enough of a student of history to and I, and I you know, I don't want to diminish the um uh, the successes and the or the sacrifices of your ancestors or mine. Mm-hmm. We, mm-hmm. We've had a lot that has happened. And then you look at the middle of the 60s, you have the Civil Rights Act, uh, the dismantling of segregation, you have the Voting Rights Act, although that's been in many ways gutted. And I believe if Martin Luther King had lived, and I believe if Daniel Patrick Moynihan had not suggested to Nixon the uh, um, policy of benign neglect, I think that would have been next on the agenda is financial remuneration and that's why i believe that um that uh reparations should be paid now if you look just going back for a moment to the issue of germany germany yeah. world war Two was over in 1945 and there's, there's no doubt about it. There has been some profound emotional and psychological reconciliation between Germany and the Jews of Europe. And I think a lot of that, not all of it, but a lot of it had to do uh, with the financial remuneration that was part of their mea culpa. They, they didn't say it wasn't me. I mean, even the ones who did, had been their grandparents, you know, it was just kind of, okay, put, put let's put some money on the table. It doesn't mean the Holocaust didn't happen, but this is part of how this healing t- takes place. And that's how I, I feel about it. And that's why I have a plan for reparations. How, how would you,
1: Congress is very divided. I mean, on the Democratic side, you have progressives versus more moderate centrists. On the Republican side, in the House and Senate, you, or in the House, you have the MAGA faction, uh, the Freedom Caucus faction versus the Republican centrists. How would you, if you're your president, And you're trying to work with Congress to create, craft this legislation that you would ultimately sign uh, to figure out a way to have more equity economically. How do you bring those disparate factions together? Because you have one side that would say, well, uh, you know, we don't have anything to do with what happened 200 years ago. So why would we agree with this? And then you may have some progressives who may argue, well, this doesn't go far enough.
2: Well, first of all, it goes back to what you and I were talking about a few minutes ago. I'm not doing this leading with what can happen. I'm Mm. leading with this is what needs to happen. Mm -hmm. That's number one. And by the way, I want to go back a little bit even on that. The majority of people didn't say, let's free the slaves. The majority of people didn't wake up and say, let's give women the right to vote. The majority of people... Uh, it didn't say let's desegregate the American South. The, you, you don't you don't begin with a majority. You begin yeah, with truth true. as you understand it. And that mm-hmm. harnesses the majority. If this country will get into a place where it would elect me president, it's reasonable. It would also be at a place where it would be electing people who agree enough uh, with what I'm talking about to help get some some deals on the table, obviously. The president doesn't have a magic wand. We don't want the president to have a magic wand. Right. Um, but no matter who the president is, he or she hopes for a House and a Senate who wants to play ball. So oh, obviously, true. if I didn't have a House or a Senate that would uh, want to play ball, then it's not reasonable to assume I could get... Uh, the whole thing accomplished, but the very fact that it is my conversation, the very fact that I I try, the very fact that I make it part of the bully pulpit expands the conversation, and I think expands the understanding of many, many people, particularly white Americans, to why this is actually a good idea that benefits everyone.
1: Well, why do you think, to the point that you just made, you clearly understand the limitations of the executive branch, and you clearly recognize the importance of that. Why do you think, and pre- I don't want to isolate President Biden here, just presidents in general. Why do you think they haven't used that bully pulpit enough to sort of govern national conversations, to have an impact on the markets, to have an impact on on corporations in terms of wages? I mean, because you know we're having this conversation right now in the country. Three hundred thirty nine thousand jobs added to the economy. We found out two weeks ago. Unemployment. I have some issues with the statistical modeling there, but I don't want to get into the data on that. Yet wages are not increasing. A significant amount of Americans are just completely not looking for jobs. And that's millions of people that we're not even talking about them. They they, they feel left out. I mean, when I go home, Marianne, to my hometown of New Orleans, and I talk to many of the black people that I grew up with, many of them much older now, they say no one cares about us these aren't folks with a college degrees they're just folks who are working class people i say you know democrat republican
2: they don't care about my day-to-day they don't mm-hmm. your friends are correct washington is owned by a corporate matrix which rules this country, whether it's the donations and the lobbying of insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies, gun manufacturers, big food companies, big agricultural companies, big chemical companies, big oil companies, or defense contractors, they own our government. Our government has become a system of legalized bribery. That's what it is. And they all go as far as their corporate donors say, there will allow you to go and if you do any differently we will make sure that you're primaried we will make sure that we give the money to your opponent we will make sure that we will decimate you in the next election we will make sure that we gerrymander you out of existence or whatever it is and what you say your friends are saying is exactly that sea of of economic despair that i was talking about and you also said something very interesting right now This isn't what people would have considered the usual suspects. This is people with college degrees. Mm -hmm. This is people and and people who have done everything right, have done everything that they were told. Well, you do that and you'll be able to to close the wage gap. You'll do that and you'll be able to climb the ladder. People are figuring it out. So this is what I mean. This is dangerously unstable now. This is dangerously unstable and um, what you just said is exactly what I mean. And that's why they don't use the bully pulpit, because they are owned by the corporations. We have a political system at this point that does more to serve the short-term profit maximization goals of its mainly corporate donors than it does to serve the health, the, the goal of health, safety, and well-being of their own constituents, the people of the United States, and our environment, and our children, and our future, our habitability of the planet. So when you ask me, why am I running? Because this is the 11th hour now. When you say you go home, it's what I hear when I go, it's what everybody hears when they go home. But Washington, Mm -hmm. you know, you and I live in the same same area. And I moved to Washington two years ago. And there are obviously some lovely people there. There are lovely people everywhere. This is not about nice people versus not nice people. That's not what this is mm-hmm. about. This is not how systems operate. But what I felt when I moved to Washington, I have was always heard it was a bubble. But you know as well as I do, because you live there too, it's more than a bubble. It's energetically a walled city. Yeah. They are. They are so emotionally buffered from the suffering that is out there.
0: VR training platforms, like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International, are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again.
1: Let's say that the fight for minimum wage for, for example, and you know, I've tussled and wrestled with this particular topic for in a lot of ways. And I want to bring it up because a lot of people um, who are poor regardless of ethnicity, but a lot of black Americans find themselves in that particular group. And what we have seen is when you sort of mandate an increase in these wages then some companies will try to find other ways to hire less people by relying more on automation. So, okay, we'll increase the wages, but we're going to go to automation to decrease some of the jobs because we don't want to pay more. How would you, as president, or what proposals, I suppose, would you make as president to sort of address that?
2: Well, I'd seek to be as hardcore with them as they are with us, because what you just said is merciless stuff there. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is why the, you know, corporations... Uh, huge corporate, you know, and not all, right, but this huge corporate empire, it, it is, it, it, they think that they, they will do what you just said, because they are saying to the government, if you try to protect the people, if you try to make things better for the people, we will find ways to make them worse. And we have to uh, have strict regulations. You know, this this thing that's happened over the last few decades, this orgy of deregulation, Regulations are often for safety. Regulations are for economic justice, and I would have a tax burden on countries on companies that did that.
1: How would you? And and that makes a lot of sense. How, how would you balance the need of regulations? I think regulations are important to protect the consumers without too much regulation to stifle innovation. What would that look like?
2: Well, under... that balance is important, and that mm-hmm. is the role of government to balance. What we were talking before about. First principle. A first principle should be you're balancing individual liberty with concern for the common good. You Mm -hmm. do want companies to be able to make money, but it's like you were saying, people don't have, you were talking about black people not having access to capital. How Mm -hmm. can you be a capitalist if you don't have any capital? Hello, (laughs) right? So you want people to be able to make money, but you also Know that it is the role of the government not just to help its donors uh, increase their profit, the role of the government should be to be the protector and the advocate for that sacred balance. Because, yes, okay, company over there, you want to make a lot of money and uh, hire a lot of workers and do a lot of goods, good for you. But if you are spewing carcinogens into the river, not okay. If you are if you are taking safe if you are doing what you're talking about optimizing your own profit for your stockholders at the expense of the safety of your workers and the benefits of your workers that they need in order to live and to support their families not okay.
1: It's so located. so would you be would you be willing um, through executive action which Democrats and Republicans have done to put pressure on different sectors when they don't like certain things. Would you be willing to do that to say, wait a minute here? You guys got to protect the workers. You have to pay the workers a fair wage. would you be willing to go that far? Or do you think that's a little too far?
2: At this point, at this point, it's not too far. Um, Mm -hmm. It shouldn't have gotten to this point. Uh, I agree with Roosevelt, who said he doesn't think that any company that does not. He said any company that does not pay its workers a living wage does not deserve to exist a company in the united states should not be paying its workers starvation wages yes i think that the government has a role there and um you obviously you you know executive orders should be kind of the path you know the the last Yeah, go to. You shouldn't Mm -hmm. go to an executive order first. You hopefully have a Congress. The the problem we have is that the ship is listing so far to the side at this point in Mm -hmm. the direction of, of wealth and wealth creation opportunities only for a few Americans. That at this point, there are those who would would say, oh, that's radical if you just want to bring us back to a level playing field. And that's why I said before, the the economic U-turn that I'm suggesting universal health care, uh, tuition free college uh, and tech school, paid family leave, guaranteed sick pay, uh, guaranteed living wage. These are considered moderate positions in every other advanced democracy. Oh Never
1: I have to tell you, Marianne, I mean, we're going to take a quick break here because I want to get into the education stuff as we get towards the end of the show. But I I, look, I think I think you're right. And and I've always had an interesting approach to, to these things being conservative minded, because I think you raised this point about if we were to really address the economic disparities between blacks and whites, you'd add over a trillion plus dollars. To the overall gdp and economy uh, which you're right i mean all the data conservative and liberal economists for the most part do agree on that they just can't seemingly agree how to get there Uh, but i've always been on the position if something's going to be an an overall net benefit to society i may not necessarily agree on the vehicle but i will agree let's figure out a way to get down this road And, and i think you're right that we're at a point where you're seeing a political system that can't even agree to go down the road. Forget which vehicle to get in.
2: They can't well, agree to go down it. I think it's worse than that. I think we have a political mm-hmm. system that does agree. It agrees to not go down it. That's yeah. that the problem. They've agreed to not go down it because they have at this point this unholy alliance in favor of what is basically corporate rule. And they get their money and they get their power from chopping wood and uh, carrying water for that corporatist elite. Now you and I probably disagree from what you're saying. Uh, I the the rays of hope that I see are mainly in the in the Democratic Party. But at this point, they are both so infused uh, with uh, this undue corporate influence that it almost doesn't matter. There's a reason why they're called the corporate duopoly.
1: Yeah. Wow. Well, guys, Marianne Williamson, this is a fascinating conversation. We're going to take our last break of the show. Uh, when we come back, you, Marianne just mentioned education. I want to get into that a little bit, particularly as it pertains to uh, the black community. This is Shermichael Singleton. Uh, check out Marianne's website, Marianne2024.com, where you can find all of her policy positions on a plethora of issues. We'll be right back after this quick break. enjoying this conversation with my guest, Marianne Williamson, who's running for president of the United States. As a Democrat, you should go to her website, Marianne2024.com. And I have to tell you guys, you guys know where I stand politically. Uh, but I am very impressed by Marianne and for the simple fact that I think she has a unique way of approaching policy. And I may not have to agree with 100% of everything, but I'll tell you this, I would certainly be willing to figure out a way to work with someone like her because I know that she would be open minded to trying to figure out issues for people that matter most. And as I told Marianne on the break, being a former presidential appointee, you really learn how far government really is willing to go to help the least of these, as my late uncle, who was an AME bishop, would say. And the unfortunate reality is we have a duopoly, a, a two-party system that is more interested, invested in maintaining power as absolute power corrupts absolutely. That old aphorism reminds us. So Marianne, you talked about education before we went to the break. And you talked about trade schools as well. Now, Black women are going to college and are graduating at incredible rates. I was just looking at the data yesterday with with my girlfriend, who's now looking at Oxford, Yale and Stanford for grad school. I mean, black women are just crushing it. But when you look at the data for black men, many of us are having a challenging time graduating high school and getting into college, but having a really difficult time staying in college. Talk about that a little bit and how would you sort of address that divide that you see within the Black community of academic
2: attainment? The divide specifically uh, based on gender and the fact that yeah. Black women mm-hmm. are oppression. I know that there is a crisis of manhood in this country and mm-hmm. we have a problem with boys, right? How that specifically pertains to, um, uh, pertains to uh, the racial factors, I don't know. I do know this. Um, it must be, and I'm a white woman talking, so I can't, you know, there's a a limit to my visceral knowledge and understanding of what it means to be a black man in America. Mm -hmm. Between police brutality and imprisonment, every black male grows up with what has got to be a traumatizing knowledge and understanding in the back of his mind. There's no way that growing up as a black male in America um, feels as could possibly feel as embracing and as supportive uh I want our young people no matter what their race and I think this is true throughout. I don't think young people in America today feel like the government has their back. And I think the reason that young people in America don't feel like the government has their back is because it doesn't. You know, I spoke, I'm here in London for my, because my my daughter just recently had a baby. Mm-hmm. Three days ago, I spoke at Cambridge University. And when I was speaking there and I had a meal with the, with the young people, the students there who had, uh, arranged for the talk. And what struck me being there was how much more hope they seemed to have, um, even than those in America who are going to our most elite schools, like Harvard, Yale, Stanford, and so forth. There's mm-hmm. an ubiquitous despair among young people in America today. Uh, they don't have health care, they don't know where they're going to get health care, they have these tremendous college loans. Debts. I can't yeah. even imagine being in your twenties and carrying tens of thousands of dollars of college loan debt. Debt is crippling, no matter what. But if you have that, that if I were in my twenties and had had tens of thousands of dollars worth of debt, there's no way I could have ever succeeded because what it does to you emotionally and psychologically. And when you realize, particularly among Black Americans. Black Americans have been told for decades, get your degree, get your education, and that's how you'll close the wage gap. And so take on these tremendous loans. And then sometimes even when they have the degree, what you were saying about your friends in New Orleans So everything, you know, it's a full, it's a whole systems breakdown. So there's a limit to what I can speak about specifically in terms of black versus, versus black females and crushing and all that, that there's a limit to what I can know. But among those factors of what I can know, I understand why for young people Amer- in America today, so much of life is it starts at a line of trauma. And then people say it's a it's a mental health crisis. That mental health crisis is at its core an economic justice crisis. And that's why none of these issues, you know, I had lunch uh, earlier today. I was talking to a man who had been uh, in a high level position uh, dealing with the foster care system in Texas of all places, where mm-hmm. he said How much of that was a, you know, most of the people there were uh, um, uh, people of color. I said to him, how do we fix the foster care system? He said, if you do not fix the issue of the economic inequities, you can't fix anything else.
1: Mm. Wow. I mean, I I think you're right because you think about access...
2: That's why the economic U-turn, and this is what Roosevelt said, he said, we must go beyond the amelioration of stress. We must have fundamental economic reform. And that's what we need. We need an absolute economic U-turn in this country. And we need it quickly, by the way. When you think about
1: technology, AI, um, automation, we're in a global society now, so you're competing against people from across the globe access to college and university is difficult because it's as you just stated it's expensive so it is economics because if you can't afford to go how can you get the degree and if you can even get in uh, the problems that a lot of uh, black youth have who do get in they can't stay Marianne because they can't afford it they can't pay
2: for it how would you address that I mean how would you address this cost well, my hello, my my uh, my reparations plan begins at a trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. My reparations plan is that there would be a a council. I call it a council of elders, but it would have to be uh, intergenerational because I see the money dispersed over a period of twenty years of black mm-hmm. leaders from across the as, across the spectrum from culture to business to politics to to uh, the arts to everything where this money is dispersed. I feel that if I owe you money, I don't get to tell you how to spend it. So I don't think white people should be figuring out how this money is spent, right? It it should be a basic within the purview of economic and educational renewal. Now this council of elders, if they decide massive infusion of of economic resources into historically black colleges Mm -hmm. or anything about that, would be your business, right? That would be the decision to be made by black leaders, not by white.
1: And so, so your, which I, I guess this actually does make a lot of sense. So your position is, whether it's foster care, that example you just made, or the educational disparities, which we know why these things exist. Your th- thing is, you have to address this economics in order to fix all of this stuff.
2: Economic injustice is the underpinning. It's mm. the cancer underlying all these other cancers. We, we, when you're having only a transactional political conversation, we're always addressing symptoms. And that system doesn't want to talk cause because they are the cause. <laughs> that system is the cause. Not in the sense of what Ronald Reagan, where he said government was the problem. Government, I'm not talking about demonizing government, but I'm mm-hmm. saying government has been hijacked by the undue influence of corporate money. I mean look at look at you know, when I was younger in the until the 1960s and 70s, you could go to public colleges and universities, University of California system, the University of Texas system.. Mm-hmm. And by the way, when I was growing up, Blue Cross Blue Shield was a nonprofit so you and i were talking uh, off mic about housing mm-hmm. what happens is this kind of it's you know um adam smith who was the main articulator of, of free market capitalism yep. mm-hmm. said it cannot exist outside an ethical context he did write that well yeah, hello now we have this often called vulture capitalism hyper capitalism crony capitalism whatever you want to call it it is soulless it is soulless. It is a heat-seeking missile for any place where there could possibly be a profit center. And so, Mary, let me ask you this question. Let me interject. What do you say to
1: the listeners of the show? We're saying we've been saying everything Marianne has stated since we've been here. And a lot of black intellectuals that have stated. In order for us to address our issues, we have to address economics first. We don't own anything. We don't have any wealth. We haven't been able to build or sustain it. But I I get this sense, though, that a lot of people in my community just sort of feel that some of these things may never come. And and I got to tell you, a part of me, having spent so much time in politics, I kind of feel a little jaded as well
2: understandably i mean there was 250 years of slavery i i mean it, look at our history here but then you also look at the abolitionists and they persevered mm-hmm. anyway you look at the women suffragists they persevered anyway you look at the civil rights movement they persevered anyway i mean you think that what what did um rosa Parks say when they said what what was it that made you decide that you wouldn't stand up she said I was tired. There's a line in, in AA they say you grow sick and tired of being sick and tired. And at a certain point, people rise up. And I understand, uh, I understand I understand that I'm tired. I can't even imagine what it's like to be um part of a a systemically um uh, oppressed group and there are economically systemically oppressed groups in this country but uh, often it's been those most oppressed groups in this country who have begun the revolutionary tide in another direction and i think we all have to dig deep into ourselves right now we have to we have to look to our ancestors because if you if you look at america we've certainly had times of great injustice before It's an Mm -hmm. insidious injustice now, but it's an injustice. It's a systemic injustice. But if you look at at our history, we have course corrected over time. And it's simply our turn. It is simply our turn.
1: In the four minutes we have left, what is it that you want people to take away from this conversation about you, generally speaking, as they think about Their decision to vote in November of next year.
2: I want them to take away what, you know, I'm first of all, I'm grateful to you. I feel we had a conversation about the real things.
1: Mm -hmm. Wonderful conversation.
2: And and I appreciate just being heard. You know, this is what I've, I've said to quite a few audiences recently. When it comes to personal conversations in America, Americans get deep. We get real. We get authentic as much as people anywhere else. When it comes to our political conversations, however, we've all been trained to get shallow, to talk in slogans, and to avoid the deeper real issues. And okay. I'm just grateful that we had the, a conversation about the real deeper issues. And then it's like, it's, it's like asking people, what do I hope they get out of a book I write? My job is to write the book to the best of my ability, uh, where people go with it in their hearts and minds at a certain level. It's like you give birth to a child and own life i want people to uh, (laughs) take whatever out of this conversation could possibly be helpful to them that's all
1: you know i think you've said a lot of things and i'm getting so many text messages from some of my friends who are listening to the show live uh some who are conservative leaning people and they're texting me saying you know sherm everything this woman is saying makes a lot of sense to me and i just think to your point that people are sort of getting tired. I think you're right. I think when you look at people on the conservative side, blue collar folks, they have been told a lot of things that a lot of those folks have now believed. And it's caused a lot of division, Marianne, a lot of tribalism. And I just wonder, can we get through this moment? Like you said, we got a big decision to make here. Are we gonna be a democracy about freedom, liberty, pursuit of happiness, justice, equality? Or are we gonna go the the road of totalitarianism and authoritarianism? And and I'll give you the last two minutes to sort of reply to that.
2: I think we all have to get out of our, our tribal silos. I think we have to speak as Americans. I think that that which is oppressing us is oppressing us whether you're on the right or on the left. You're being oppressed by the same forces and it's a shadowy economic corporate tyranny at this point and the status quo which it represents and its grip on the u.s government that status quo will not disrupt itself that's going to be our job you know whether it was abolition or or women's suffrage or the civil rights movement it wasn't that a political party began the shift it was the people themselves and um we need the electoral power We can't leave Mm -hmm. electoralism out of it, but we, the people, have to rise up now, not as black, white, rich, conservative or liberal, but as Americans. And uh, I think if you look at the history of this country, we've done it before. It's our turn now. And I don't just think that we can do it. I know that we can do it. And I'm just grateful for anyone who considers my being president as part of what could be a solution.
1: Well, look, I have to tell you, I've enjoyed this conversation. I mean, this was a wonderful, wonderful conversation. I could talk to you all day. Uh, Marianne Williamson, Democrat, running for president of the United States. Guys, check out her website, Marianne2024.com.